it's in the stitching of Seattle, the undercurrent of vice, the undercurrent of anti-authoritarianism. You may know this, the, the famous story about the seamstresses in Seattle. Tell me. Okay. Tell me the so, story. There was a census done, uh, I forget exactly when, or late 1800s uh, in Seattle, and they um, asked for you know gender and occupation. And there were, and I, I don't know the exact number, but there were a huge number of women listed as seamstress. And in all of Seattle, there was one sewing machine. Um, and of course, this is because uh, a lot of men came through here and um, on their way up to Alaska, and there was this all kind of like pioneer traffic and everything like that. And so the uh, sex work was very, was very profitable here. Okay. And uh, well, so it started from the beginning, from the very beginning. We, we have had um, a, a lusty relationship with the more illicit sides of sexuality and also not caring that that's known, you know? We're like, yeah. Seattle's a kinky city. <laughs> Welcome to Weed Week. I'm Alex Halperin. And I'm Donnell Alexander. This is a special episode of the Weed Week podcast. You can subscribe to our free Canada and California newsletters, as, re- as well as my original Weed Week newsletter, all at weedweek.net. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. Subscribe and review or like our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, or any of the other popular platforms. Our episode is special in that in 2018, I sat down with one of my favorite Seattle mothers, Chelsea Sabara, co-founder of the celebrated brand Velvet Swing. And you know what kind of cannabis products Velvet Swing makes, Alex. It's a, it's a lube. For cars? Are cars using cannabis? How's this work? It's not a lube for cars. It's a lube for humans, for, for sex. Yeah. And um, (laughs) we haven't done a story like this. Not one about a former non-consumer from Florida innovating a popular lube product in the nation's opposite corner. Um, It it should be be a lot of fun. It's interesting. I took a lot of the sex out just because we're a cannabis podcast and not a sex podcast. We had to come down somewhere in the middle. Have you had any experiences with cannabis lubes, Donnie? Yes, but I'd rather not talk about it. <laughs> the one thing I will say is that men and women can use them. That's the surprising element. We talked a little bit about it on the uh, the holiday gift guide episode. I once used a, a, a cannabis lube for um, you know for for research purposes, and mm-hmm. my 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 partner. She, her, her mind was blown away, but but that had mainly to do with me. Oh, I now I really want to hear where you're going with this. Is that that's not where you're going? No, it just didn't do anything for her, and I don't know if it was the brand or that the products in general don't work for her, or maybe don't work for most people. I'm just not sure. This is addressed in the episode. I won't go giving away it too much, but. Like a lot of people report not getting high the first time they smoke, a lot of people who use lubricants, they don't always report having a, an experience the first time. Not sure what that's all about. Okay. Maybe that's what happened. I, mean, I also will say there's a lot of variables, and I just think some products are better than others, and people say really good things about Velvet Swing. I'll say that the product I used wasn't Velvet Swing. This is someone worth listening to because she comes from a, a scientific approach. She's not just screwing around. Cool. But before we talk about this, we have something in the in a newsier vein. 
Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about jobs. I'm happy to have one. Yeah. So a survey conducted by Leafly and the National Cannabis Roundtable, that's the industry lobby fronted by former Speaker of the House John Boehner, found that tens of thousands of jobs would be saved if the industry were able to access federal coronavirus relief. You know, that's that's pretty interesting. And it also found that 58% of cannabis businesses have cut their workforce, which is pretty devastating in in an industry that has been a pretty positive jobs creator for the last couple of years. When I saw that the survey was conducted by the National Cannabis Roundtable, I thought, this is where John Boehner earns his money. He doesn't go door to door conducting the survey. <laughs> I would love to see that. No, I think of this now as a, a campaign for winning public opinion. You know, it's not like cannabis users historically have been people to call their politicians and say, represent me in D.C. But now is a time where I think what people think about the industry is going to play a huge role in whether there's a remedy sent to retailers, growers, processors, etc. I think it was last night on The Daily Show, I saw a piece about the cannabis industry struggles. And when you're crossing over like that, you're at the beginning of being able to let, let America know that this essential industry is um, struggling. I think too much of it happens in private. I feel like this is an ongoing conversation, but I do think that's the case. So tell us about your conversation with Chelsea. The only thing you need to understand about this Velvet Swing origin story is that Chelsea Sabara wasn't a consumer of cannabis when she arrived in Washington at what she calls the ass end of 08. She had a physical condition that brought her to her weed revelation. But just as much, the years and months preceding this revelation are what make her story interesting. What's compelling is that Chelsea wasn't looking for business. She was looking for community. Here's what Chelsea Sabara told Donnie up in Seattle's Fremont neighborhood. We are a kinky city. Uh, it is not uh, a coincidence that Savage Love, Dan Savage's column, and that led to Mistress Matisse's column, Control Tower, um, which was in many alternative weeklies across the country, uh, started here. And for our size, our community is as big as New York's. I moved out here at the ass end of 2005. My husband at the time and I drove out here. I was looking for community. And while I was going to school, before I actually got into the meat of my thesis work, I almost moved back to Florida. You know, we went out to our local bar and we met some people and like they were friends, they kind of became a friend group, but we were in experiencing what is called the Seattle freeze where people are very nice, they're very polite, but you can't get through to the actual friendship and intimacy unless you have a lot of time with them or you have some kind of shared experience or interest that kind of pops that bubble. And drinking at a bar is not sufficient for that. So we had these friends that like we kind of were there with but we didn't really vibe but we liked them but it wasn't quite we couldn't get through to the deeper intimacy and coming from florida which is the south really um it it was very shocking and i felt very lonely and a friend of mine in florida had died and i went back and went to his funeral he died unexpectedly and um saw my old friends and was like oh my friends you know and i came back to seattle and there was no one was nothing just my partner and he was working long hours and I was going to school and working 
And I, I, yeah, I was very, very lonely. And then I started doing my thesis work. And as a result of this, I put out a call on a polyamory board and said, I'm a researcher, I'm looking for participants. And that was fascinating. The people that responded to that was just, if you really want to get hit on, like that's the way to do it, first of all, as a young female, that will get you hit on. including uh, a a woman that I went out and we did an interview and I found myself attracted to her. One of the cool things about doing this research from the modern perspective of anthropology is you don't try to maintain that reserve. You don't try to maintain that distance between you and your subject. You're part of the research. And if you end up in a romantic relationship with your subject, all the better. And my advisor encouraged me to be in my research. So we did our interview, nothing funny, you know, during the interview process. But afterwards, um, she asked me out and I said, okay. And uh, we started dating and I said, I'm really struggling to find community here. I'm not vibing with people. And then um, she said, I think what she actually said was, oh, honey, I'll take you to a party. And she took me to a party, uh, which later I found out was a sex party, but at the time I didn't, I didn't see sex happening. She hadn't told me that it was a, a sexy party. I was wearing, I don't know, I kind of always dressed a little slutty. I'm still trying to learn to not dress slutty. I like to dress slutty. You're failing. It's good. I know. I really like, I, re- I want to be naked all the time. And that's just, I know I'm going to end up in a nudist colony. I know it's happening. So I'm sure I was wearing something that was kind of suggestive, but I wasn't going to it as a, like, I was, I was there with my, you know, I, I was married. Where, as I said, I'm non-monogamous, so I was, I was dating this woman, and there with her, and she was dressed normally. And we show up, and the house is like a bohemian fantasy of, like, tapestries and there's pillows everywhere and it's beautiful this is not like a stoner garage this is like in the central district it's an old house that's been decked out sumptuously there's no overt sexuality going on but everyone's just cuddling and talking and maybe holding hands and and I just remember looking around at all of these people all of these beautiful people and going this is it this is my community here they are here are the freaks, here are the weirdos, here are the people who look at life the way that I do. Is this, this is before or after the sex? <laughs> I never saw the sex. Mm-hmm. This one, I didn't, I didn't know it was a sex party. It was not, maybe it was a party where it was okay for sex to happen. Maybe it was a sex positive environment where the intent of the party is not sex. But if you find yourself called to, to do that, that they support that and you don't have to hide that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I never saw sex happening while I was there, and part of the reason for that was that I was making out with my girlfriend in the upstairs bedroom. <laughs> too busy to see. <laughs> I was too busy. Yeah. So, yeah, so we... Did this go into your report, by the way, into, into your did. paper? It did, yeah, it uh, did, it did, okay. it, in less lurid terms, but it, it did. Um, How the, did you describe it? The, ag- the acknowledgement. I described my relationship with this woman in, in kind of more clinical terms. But the point of, of that paper was not really to narratively convey my individual experience. It was more to use my individual experience as an insight on how things are done in this culture. At that party, 
I also ended up meeting my second husband, who was there with his partner at the time. And in my personal life, you know, I, the, the woman that I was seeing and I broke up and I did start to see um, this guy that I met at this party. And, he, you know, and then as things happen over time, relationships changed. My first husband and I got divorced. We were not a good match. We were very in love, but we were not a good match. Um, and I didn't think I was ever going to get married again, but then I did actually end up getting married to this guy a few years later. In that time, I had the good fortune of being laid off. Uh, I had put myself through school in part doing corporate leasing, which if you can imagine how I looked at this time, I had this you know bright red, like shaved head side thing and uh, uh, what is that business what is that leasing uh, it was um, rental properties for business entities and I also did residential leasing it doesn't require a real estate license so it's good for entry level and the money is very good so I would um, take you know clients on tours of office spaces or of uh, apartments you know leasable properties rental properties um, show them around, and then if they decided that they wanted to sign a lease, I would draft the lease and take them through it. And um, it, it was great. It was sales, basically, okay. but it was fun. It was enjoyable. It wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. But then I graduated from college directly into the recession and couldn't find anything in my, I mean, an anthropology degree? What's that? It's very useful, but nobody's hiring anthropologists. So I went back to leasing because I needed some money. And it was fine. I was doing some corporate leasing. And then the company, the building that I was working out of was sold. And the company laid a bunch of people off, myself included. And that was a turning point. Because then I was liberated suddenly, <laughs> violently, from my, <laughs> my uh, employment, my status as employment. And at this moment, I stopped thinking of myself as an employee. And I started thinking of myself as a sentient collection of marketable skills. And this is, I think, something that a lot of millennials, I'm an old millennial, have uh, went through. They said, all of a sudden, traditional employment isn't working. What skills do I have that I can monetize? And then we ended up with the gig economy. And I was very much a creature of the gig economy. I went, well, what can I do? What do I know how to do? I know about sex. I can teach people about sex. I know about, uh, I know how to bake. So I had a small baking business. I always loved to bake, and I had a home-based baking business for a while. I was doing burlesque. I can monetize that. It's not a huge income, but it is not nothing. I was 25. I had five jobs. But it was always just two hours here, two hours there, you know. And the ups and downs of self-employment, gigging uh, as a primary uh, source of income, is very stressful. And then I looked for a buffer to that stress in the form of a day job. I was starting to look for like, I need something that's a part-time job that I know at least I'll get $100 every week. So some months you make, you know, four grand. Some months you make nothing. And some months you make nothing two months in a row. And it was just at this process when I was over at uh, my friend's house. We were just hanging out. And I had an onset of endometriosis pain endometriosis being when there is uterine material outside the uterus and the pain is excruciating. Every time you get your period, the tissue swells, but it has nowhere to go. And so your 
abdomen is contracting and it's, you know, vomiting and just horrendous. It's awful, awful pain. Like if the house was on fire, I could not have left. I would give birth four times again before I want to go through endometriosis again. This is happening. I'm a complete wreck. And my friend says, you should smoke some weed. And I said, no, no, I don't even like weed. Like, she's like, no, no, you don't understand. You need to do this. Take two bong rips. And I'm desperate. I've tried everything. I've been on prescription painkillers, muscle relaxers, all this stuff. None of it has ever helped. And here I am on the floor on my friend's house, and she's offering me a bong. And I'm saying, okay, fine. So I did two bong rips. In 10 minutes, the pain was gone. I didn't even feel high. The pain was gone. And I said, what is that? Where is that from? Where can I get that? And she uh, told me that her friend was actually uh, the source of this cannabis and that she was opening up a medical dispensary. And this is the dawning of legalized medical cannabis in Washington. This is literally day one. uh, It was like a week away from day one of opening the doors of legal medical cannabis. I had to find out about it. I, I, it was such a transformative experience. I had to know everything. That's just how my mind works. And maybe I, you know, the, the education that I received is why my brain is set to, right. I need to understand, I need to pick it apart. I, need, I want to know this intimately. Well, don't skip over that part. Yeah. I, can you just go on a little more about that? <laughs> what do you, why do you think, why do you connect those two things? Uh, it's just a way of relating to the world and to new information, a thirst for understanding. And that, I think, did come from growing up in an unstructured learning environment where learning is pleasurable and passionate instead of something that is authoritatively imposed. And I, I really wanted to understand why this had healed me, or at least it had addressed my symptoms in such a profound and noticeable way when nothing else ever had. I ended up talking to the friend who was opening the dispensary, and this is at the time where I'm looking for a job, and she said, hey, I'm actually looking for someone to run the front desk. Awesome. Interviewed, and I I have my day job, and I start learning. And I'm working there in this environment. I'm learning everything as from the experienced people that are there. I'm reading of my own accord and trying to find out what, what is the deal with cannabis as a medicine. And eventually I did... Uh, bud tend there. I started actually helping people connect with the right strains and stuff like that. And I would work there off and on. And that's where the bulk of my experience came from. And that and my, my just kind of voracious consumption of what exists out there as, as both anecdotal and... So where do these worlds merge? I mean, because you're, you're someone who's you're like a go-getter. Who's <laughs> interested in anthropological stuff and uh-huh. there's pot entering the picture. Where do you get to the point where you're making the product? Oh, that, yeah. yeah. You, what's that journey? Where did it begin? <laughs> well, it, it began when I started, uh, when I was working at this dispensary, which then now became a recreational pot shop because everything unfortunately moved under the purview of recreational law, which was very, uh, it was a bad thing for patients. It's really unfortunate. But 
at this time, um, I'm bud tending as a day job and I start seeing products coming in that are designed for sexuality. And they've got these hilarious names like Hempy Endings or the Token Poke. Like, it's awful. <laughs> so they, I'm seeing this stuff and because of my background um, in sex education and sexuality um, and sexual health, I am looking at the ingredients on these and going, whoa, you can't put that in a vagina. That is a yeast infection waiting to happen. You can't, this is formulated really poorly. Give me some examples of some of the... Um, glycerin, right? Which is just food for, for yeast. And it might be okay for some women, maybe not. Um, there were uh, butane extractions that would contain resident, uh, residual butane. Um, and I don't have any scientific data on why putting butane residue in your vagina might be a bad idea, but I can guarantee you I won't do that. <laughs> and I won't let anyone else do that if I can help it. So I realized that there was this world of people who knew a lot about cannabis, and there was this world of people who knew a lot about sex, but that there wasn't really anyone in between those worlds that was making products. And I started as a first step teaching sex and cannabis workshops because not only were there these kind of awful products, not all of them, some of them were, were great or at least were good, not only were those around, but there was a complete lack of acknowledgement or conversation around the fact that this is a mind-altering substance that if you include it into your sexuality brings up questions of consent and of meaningful consent. It is something that is new and I think, I think we need to be emphasizing it more. There are some people who would say if you are in any way altered that your consent is invalidated and I don't believe that. I believe that you can make your own risk assessments and that human beings are pretty resilient um, if you go into things mindfully and knowingly. That said, we do need to talk about it and we have an existing cultural understanding of alcohol as it comes to bear on consent, that you can be too drunk to consent, and that if you've had, like there are things that you should do if you've had a few drinks to think about if you really wanna do stuff. In the sex positive world, we're very practiced at being intentional prior to sexual activity. We set out, you know, this is what I want to do. This is my yeses, my noes, my maybes. Here's what I'm open to. Here's what you want. Here's the last time I was tested. Here's, you know, my relationship structure. This is all normalized in the sex positive community. It is not normalized in the, the, the muggle community. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the I, I take that from... Uh, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter oh. books. It's a way. It's a. It's a way of saying normal people right. without being pejorative. Because there's nothing wrong with being normal. It's just our, our, our dominant culture doesn't encourage us to speak intentionally and openly about sexuality, which is why I wanted to do something about that. Right. So we're not having the conversation of we're going to smoke a joint together. Sometimes weed makes people go nonverbal. I'm not too high, but I'm having a hard time speaking. How can I tell you with hand squeezes, yes or no, do more, do less, please stop, that kind of thing. Especially if you have an edible, because you can get way too out there with an edible, and then you might find yourself not able to, you know, I, 
and you combine with alcohol or other drugs and all of this other stuff that goes into the mix, I'm not saying don't get high and screw. I actually think that's a great idea. But know what you're doing, know your body, know how your body reacts to cannabis. And this was the meat of my, of my workshop was that um, you need to know what's out there, what options exist. Mm -hmm. There are psychoactive options, there are non-psychoactive options, you don't have to get high. Mm -hmm. And you need to know yourself and you need to be able to communicate with your partner and you need to have contingencies for if your, your yes becomes a maybe not midstream during the activities, right? These are the conversations you're having at your, your workshop, right? Yes, um, yeah. Can, did you have, did you do many of them? Yeah, they, they actually became very, very popular. Oh, okay, so, so take me inside the room. <laughs> what, show me what a good one looks like. What, what, a good one looks like, and my, my slides have gotten much better than they used to, but it starts off But with, I'm in the room, you know, just in terms of who, what you're looking oh, yeah. at from the podium and what's uh, going on. Well, most of these happen in sex shops or in pot shops. Mm -hmm. um, originally, just mostly in sex shops. Babeland was fantastic. Um, I started working with them. And they, they, were all, they continue to be great uh, to work with. Um, and I would stand surrounded by dildos and whips and people come in, you know, who have either signed up or sometimes people just come in who are walking in off the street and they're interested in the topic. We did different formats. Sometimes we would be sitting where people, the store was closed and it would only be people who had registered in advance or something. And most of these folks, wide variety of folks um most of these folks wanted easy answers like the guy in the back of the and i'm sorry but it is always a guy there's the guy in the back and there's a, what strains are gonna make my wife horny you know my wife doesn't want to have sex anymore what strains do i give her to make her horny again i'm gonna give you credit for being the first person to do a voice so <laughs> that's nice thank you for helping with that um, so it's always a guy and what it's you, this guy and, and uh yes and and first of all I'm like well if your wife doesn't want to have sex anymore probably like the solution is not a joint probably the solution is communication about what what's going on with her and the second part of it is that it's not that simple because of the uniqueness of everyone's endocannabinoid system which is incredibly unique um, what works for me might not work for his wife. And um, there's a process of discovery that's just inherent to cannabis, which is kind of the reasons why it's resisted uh, commodification. And that, I think, uh, definitely uh, spoke to my little black anarchist heart. <laughs> because it's so, you, you, you can't isolate cannabinoids and have them do the same thing that the whole plant does. And Western science is amazing. I'm a huge fan of science. Uh, but it seeks to isolate variables and then say, this is the part that works. This is the therapeutic part. And that's what we did with THC. This is the active ingredient. But if you have straight up THC or it's synthetic marinol, you have a bad time. It's not pleasant. And that's because it's not meant to work in isolation. It's meant to work symphonically with the other compounds. There's like 88 or 102 something, the number changes all the time depending on where you ask, um, known cannabinoids. Do you see parallels 
in your own life between how this works, you know? I mean, because it seems like you've integrated like your core stuff. <laughs> you know, I never thought about that actually, <laughs> but you're probably onto something. So how do you get there? How do you get there to becoming someone who's making, making stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, once, we, once I was doing that, I was, uh, I was making and um, sharing <laughs> with my sex positive community. I, I was making uh, cannabis lube on my stovetop and topicals are my area of primary fascination. Topically applied cannabis, or topicals for short, is um, just cannabis infused into oil, similar how you would to do a, uh, to make brownies or something like that. You would infuse them into butter. Um, it's the same thing, only infused into an oil that you then would rub on your skin. There's a lot of versions on this, and it gets way more complex. but. Turns out you have these endocannabinoid receptors on your skin and in the immediate tissue underneath. Um, basically, any um, anywhere that oil lives, there tend to be these receptors, which is interesting. Um, and uh, cannabinoids are powerful anti-inflammatories. I, I have to be clear that I'm not making any medical claims here. This is all with an asterisk of many people say, I have heard, my personal experience has been, and things like that. Um, they're also uh, vasodilators, which means they, they will bring blood to tiny uh, blood vessels, uh, particularly THC, but other ones as well. And if you do this, uh, if you do an infusion, there's a particular kind that, that you can do, and I try to retain as much of the whole plant as possible, so I do a really short-term infusion. Um, if you then use that with coconut oil or olive oil as a, a lube, um, you get this vasodilation effect and increases sensitivity. I just am obsessed with topical applications in the first place. I think they're really underutilized and really amazing. And especially using them for sex um, is just, I mean, it, it's phenomenal. The vasodilation, the flushing, is distinct from warming lubes and sensitizing lubes because it interacts with your body's native systems of arousal. Warming lubes and sensitizing lubes create an exterior sensation of cold or tickliness. Cannabinoids applied topically just cause this kind of natural flushing similar to what you would get if you were horny and trying to focus in a board meeting or something like that. It, it feels normal. After about 20 minutes, and good luck getting the funding to study this, although there is someone <laughs> trying to study right now and I'm trying to boost her signal as much as possible, but after about 20 minutes of absorption, many people experience an amplification of orgasm. And I can't understand why the whole world isn't turned on to this. This is the coolest thing. Well, do you get an amplification of orgasm? Have you? Oh, that? yeah. So tell me the difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it actually took, it, it's similar to uh, the first time you smoke, you don't get high sometimes. Mm -hmm. People report that a lot. Um, it's similar to that. The first time that I used it, I, I first got some uh, cannabis lube that my friend made, and I tried it. The first time I was like, I don't really think I noticed anything. And I tried it again, and I was like, oh, it's a little bit, little bit better, a little bit more I'm noticing. And the third time that I tried it, I was like, <gasps> I'm going to make that. <laughs> 
It, it was re- it's really amazing, and I, I recommend it to everybody. Well, so tell me, how did you get it out in the world? Was it word of mouth? What, oh, this, this was, at this point, when I was making it on my stove, this is just sharing with, with friends. At this point, uh, I'm doing these workshops, and I'm, I'm, I'm making this stuff, and my friend from the sex-positive community and sex-education community, um, Mistress Matisse, she uh, is, gets uh, connected with, she knows uh, our CEO. They were friends for a long time. One fine day, I ran into a friend of mine who said, oh, guess what? I just got the craziest job. I've been made CEO of a pot company. And I said, really? How do you know? <laughs> and I, just, I went to my friend and said, Chelsea, so that's her name, Chelsea, th- we have a moment here. Like, I have, a, I have a connection. You have this talent. And I got, you know, I got the sh- razzle-dazzle. So... We pitched the idea of this cannabis lube to this pot company, and they were very interested in it. And she contacted me and said, I've got a line on a company that has an emulsion technology. They, they're willing to make a product line for me, but I need someone to make it. Do you want a job in the cannabis industry? And at first I said, I've got a job in the cannabis industry. Like, I'm fine, you know? But... She kept kind of, you know, saying, hey, I think you, we should do this. Eventually, uh, and I was contracting for a little bit, and then uh, they, they talked me into coming in on full time. And, uh, Wait, to do what? Uh, to create the, the formula. Okay, for, so what's that process like? Um, it's a lot of trial and error. I mean, I, I, I come from a social science background, not a hard science background, but the scientific method is pretty much what I did. And I had uh, a knowledge of what goes into a lube. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, it's not as complex because you want to keep the ingredients minimal. You want it to just be, you know, as, as little as possible. And we just uh, experimented with different ingredients, different uh, arrangements, different proportions, and different, uh, yeah, and then we use the base emulsion, mm-hmm. which is their proprietary technology. And that is fortunately pretty clean also. It doesn't have a lot of like funny stuff going on in there. It's all vaginally compatible. And then we did a lot of testing. Over what period of time are we talking that this happened? It took about eight months. Mm-hmm. What were the initial results like? It was, it, the, the results so far as orgasmic enhancement, sensitivity enhancement, were always really good. The uh, consistency of the lube itself was really the tricky part because I, I knew from experience what cannabinoids to put in at what ratios. Mm-hmm. And that was just because of my, uh, my knowledge with the cannabis world with uh, you know, certain terpenes will enhance absorption of cannabinoids. Uh, certain cannabinoids and certain ratios will work synergistically. How did you know Mistress Matisse? Before. Oh, we, we were both sex educators, and we're in the sex-positive world together. But how did you meet her? Do you remember meeting her? <laughs> well, at a party, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what part of the party were you most comfortable sharing with me? You, and you know, this, on this podcast, you can share it all, but I'm just saying. When you, oh, was, the connection, was the connection purely sexual? Did you, I mean, how did you oh, connect? No, we, how did you we, connect with we, we have not had sex. Okay. Well, that's very nice. Um, we... We, we've been in a lot of sexual situations together. Um, so you're just flirting for a really long time. I don't know. I, what, I mean, what is flirting? I, I can't help but flirt with everything. But the first time we met, I was absolutely too intimidated to go up to her. She's a local celebrity, right? 
I've been reading her column. I can't believe I'm seeing this person. You know, she's gorgeous. And I'm just like, I can't, uh, what do I do? And I was very young at the time as well. The first time I met her, I was, oh, oh hi, nice to meet you. You know, and then that was it. And then our communities overlapped a lot. So we, we ended up at, at parties together. Her partner had me suspended in rope over the penthouse of a apartment building one time. It's beautiful. But it was, it was great. It was, it was fun. So we knew each other from that. We knew each other from just, just being in the same community. And she knew that I did this and uh, may have partaken of the lube that I was making. Did she say favorable things? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. But she never liked how oily, uh, how oily it was. And this is just a problem with cannabinoids because they're mm-hmm. oleophilic. Um, they uh, they want to be with other oils. And since oils work well for lube, it's very easy to just infuse them into oils and then use those oils as, as lube. But oils do have some drawbacks. They, they are staining, they're kind of messy, and they smell like weed. And it's not a problem for me to smell like weed. I actually like the smell of weed. But uh, a lot of people I've been learning now in my current capacity don't. They don't want to smell weed hmm. in their sexual experience. So you're still working these things out, correct? Well, now we've got it. Oh. We're on the market, okay. and we're, we're number one. Our guest was homeschooled back in Orlando, Florida. Chelsea Sabara's parents are Laura Baugh and Bobby Cole, both professional golfers. It happened that they discussed raising Chelsea and her six siblings in last Sunday's USA Today. We'll include a link to that on the podcast show page. And that is our show for this week. If you would like to offer feedback, go with hello at weedweek.net. But before you do that, before you begin that project, here's Alex with his weekly Twitter thing. We're thrilled to welcome at Hillary Corrigan. That's H-I-L-A-R-Y-C-O-R-R-I-G-A-N as our new reporter. What's her background? Hillary lives in Oregon and she's got a great background in energy and environmental reporting. And as you should check out the website because she'll be filing original stories for us daily, which means we've got original reporting and analysis on the site just about every day. Yeah, it's it's a great addition. I love people with reporting backgrounds coming into the weed industry, covering it. Thanks for listening. We have new episodes on the website every Tuesday morning. You can also catch me Friday at 5 West Coast time in our Instagram live podcast, Freezer Stash. This week, I'll have Mary Jane Gibson and Elvis McGovern, the alleged MacGyver of weed from episode 70, and we'll have a drink. Also, make sure you enter our contest to win an autographed copy of the Cannabis Dictionary I penned. As you may have heard, Forbes gave my book its highest weed recommendation. You can enter by signing up for our one of our newsletters. That's Weed Week, Weed Week Canada, and Weed Week California. They're all free, and they're all at weedweek.net. And if you've listened this far, subscribe and review or like us on Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever it is you happen to be hearing us. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Donnell Alexander. Our show is produced by Donnie Alexander, engineered by Larry Buell, and Alicia Byer wrote our theme music. We'll catch you again here next week. Later. Later.